Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. If you're looking for a pragmatic, reasoned, patriotic, pro-liberty approach to our domestic and foreign policy, and also especially focused on issues not only of uh, Muslim reform, but anti-Islamism, counterterrorism, national security, sort of a global picture from uh, a leading voice within the Muslim reform movement, uh, you've come to the right place. Also, as uh, sort of a fringe benefit, sometimes we talk about medical issues uh, and uh, other uh, free market issues, uh, whatever else is on my mind. And uh, glad to have you. Uh, and uh, if you're new, hope you enjoy it. Uh, this week, we've got a lot to talk about related to not only Ukraine, the belligerence of Putin, no surprise to many of us. And uh, I think the perspective of a Syrian American, somebody whose family escaped not only persecution in Syria, but Syria, as many of you who are aware, has, has long been a client state now, not only of Iran, but uh, sort of of that Russian axis for decades. So I think some of us may have a little light to shed on what's happening in Ukraine and what happens in states that uh, the Russian military operates in freely and invades. Also, professional golfer this week has come to the light uh, of many of his sponsors are beginning to drop him, Phil Mickelson. I think Phil Hill's from Scottsdale here in the area and has long been uh, a leading golfer in the PGA Tour. I'm not much of an expert on who's who in, in golf as far as uh, top-rated golfers. I have watched a few uh, uh, of the Opens that have been here in town, but I will tell you that the media on this story is missing the boat, and we'll get into that today, uh, where Phil's losing sponsors, and uh, he had uh, some frank words to say, and he's not the story. The story is the Saudis, and we'll talk about it. Last a Muslim is now in the Israeli Supreme Court. Yes, they've long had Arab representation on it, but uh, a Muslim is on the Israeli on the Israeli uh, uh, judicial system, Supreme Court. And I think you don't hear much about that from the Islamist sympathetic media, traditional media, because oh God forbid they portray Israel as a democracy and in a positive light. And we'll mention that. So, I think uh, Claudia Rosette at PJ Media, Pajamas Media, really summarized it best in the title of her piece uh, released a couple days ago called uh, Ukraine in the Coliseum. She said, it's not as if the United States and its NATO allies have failed to react to Vladimir Putin's amplifying threats and current onslaught against Ukraine. We've seen months of frantic U.S.-led diplomacy, European visits to the Kremlin, speeches in Munich, additional U.S. troops dispatched to reinforce NATO, U.N. Security Council meetings, and new sanctions on top of old sanctions. But, nonetheless, it's hard to escape the sense that 
mighty democracies of the West are not so much standing with Ukraine as sitting like spectators at the Colosseum watching Ukraine do single combat against Russia. To be sure, the U.S. and its allies are rooting for Ukraine, providing Ukraine with military hardware and logistical support and rolling out stacks of sanctions and condemnations and other non-kinetic punishments for Russia. But this is now a gunfight, a war, not a diplomatic dinner party or a Harvard seminar. Yes, formal alliances matter, and Ukraine is not part of the 30-member NATO alliance. But right now, Ukraine is in the front line in a shutdown and a showdown over the unwritten rules of the prevailing world order. And he can bet China's dictator, Xi Jinping, with his own predatory ambitions, is watching and learning aplenty about how we handle such things these days. Really right on target in her comments. And what can we learn from this? Where do we go from here? What's happening? I think the world has been amazed that actually, as of the time I'm talking to you now, this weekend, the Ukrainian civilian civilian uh, um, citizens and, and military has been remarkably effective at holding back the Russian invasions at all of their pincer points around the very large country and into their incursion into Kiev. It's been amazing. Now, is that testimony to the weakness of the Russian military? But they have the weapons, they have the the weight and the heft and the volume, which completely outguns the Ukrainians. But it's a testimony to the strength of the Ukrainians, the courage. Zelensky is setting a standard now for the woke, the woke who now he, he told Biden, I don't need a ride. I need arms. I need weapons for my people. I'm not going anywhere. The United States offered him a departure ticket. Can you believe that? And it is amazing to me that, you know, one of the learning points I think is that is, is going to transform. You remember the globalists, the, the uh, ones who want to diminish national identity, realize that the people that the left even is on the side of against Russia, against Putin's nationalism, are Ukrainian nationalists. They do not want to become a satellite of the old Soviet Union again and what Putin is rebuilding in the new vision of Russia as he feels the communists have uh, been failures. Now, he's revisiting a new Russia, a new Russian empire, and he needs Ukraine for its wealth, for its treasure, and also to bring back what he feels in a fascistic way are the Russian people that are part of Ukraine that want to be there. And I think the response so far has been surprising that the vast majority of the Ukrainians don't want to be part of Russia and are rejecting it not only intellectually but viscerally. And they're fighting back with every element they have. Women and children have have tried to go out through Poland as refugees have increased now and the men have stayed back to fight. And many women have also. But that's at least the way the news have reported. But uh, you see women's carry- women carrying arms and so many men and women fighting side by side against Russia, Russian military belligerents. 
We've talked about this many times on this program, which is how do you defeat evil? Uh, these authoritarian regimes from the Middle East to China and Russia who do not share our vision of the world, who their world vision is not about individual liberty or universal human rights, but rather for the collective oppressive forces to uh, provide where the end justifies the means, and thus anyone who speaks up, sticks their head up, will have it removed and beheaded, both figuratively and literally. And we see this in the way the Chinese treat the Uyghurs and the way the Chinese treat any dissidents, minorities or otherwise, whether they're minority opinions or minority groups. And we see the same thing now with Russia. And these are not just domestic squabbles, as many who are non-interventionalists or isolationists have wanted to say in the past, which is that, yes, that what is American interests in China, what is American interests domestically in Saudi Arabia or in Egypt or elsewhere? And the bottom line is that eventually many of these folks will become these governments will become aggressive externally. You can make an argument that every country is different, but at least the topic of the day, be it Russia and Putin, is that the Russian Empire is not content with what it has. It will seek it will seek power, influence, treasure, land outside its borders. And that's what we're seeing now with the with the invasion of Ukraine, the attempt to destroy what is a sovereign state, an attempt to subjugate its people at the will and the power of the Russian dictatorship of Putin. And I can tell you, if I can reflect a bit as a Syrian-American, my family is pro-American, not only because of the root of the root attraction of the ideology of freedom and liberty and secular democracy that ultimately we came to embrace, but my grandfather's generation in the early 20th century, in the first half of the 20th century, Zudi Jasser, my dad's father, was a politician that was educated in London who came to embrace British democracy and Western democracy and wanted to bring that home to Syria, went back to Syria in the 50s, uh, I'm sorry, in the uh, 40s, and ultimately, at the end of World War II, France pulled out, left the people of Syria to try to develop their own government. And for a few years, there was an attempt at a, a Western form of democracy with a parliament and separation of powers. My grandfather was uh, very close to the uh, People's Party, Hezbollah, as it was called, and they attempted these things. But ultimately... It failed because the people had no weapons, because the military were full of thugs, because for long, when the French military had occupied Syria, they left, the Syrian people left the military to be run by France and also the thugs of their society, which included Assad's tribal community, ultimately. And they were all, many of whom happened to be Alawite, but were really part of this fascist, Arabist mentality, um, Ba'athists, that then became and formed the Ba'ath Party. Now, that took many, many permutations of, of coup d'etats 
over 20, I believe, through the 50s and early 60s until the Ba'ath took over in 63. But one of the things that then the Ba'ath did as they solidified power in a massacre in 63 in Hama and then in 67 and then in 70 as Hafez Assad took over was to solidify their relationship with Russia, to solidify that the fact that they were going to get arms, weapons, technology through Russia. And they became, they allowed Russia to build a base beginning in 71 in Tartus, which was on the Mediterranean. And Syria, all of a sudden, a small country of 22 million Arabs became invaluable to the Russian military because of its Mediterranean base. And now we see 50 plus years later, a revolution was withstood of unbelievable proportions for Syria where you had at one time 60-70% of the population pushing back against Assad in the first year or two. And had there not been external influence, especially from Iran and Russia, with weapons, finances, and soldiers, tens of thousands of Hezbollah-type tri- type troops and Russian military and air support that allowed them to persist. But for decades and generations, Russia has maintained a stranglehold of their strongman, Assad, the father, Hafez, until 2000, and then the son, Bashar. So the Syrian population knows all too well what the illness, what the sickness, and what the cancer of Russian infiltration into Syria does. And many of our families, my family's from Aleppo, and in the business community understood the need for free markets and that the polar opposite to that was communism, Bolshevism, whatever you want to call it, that the Russians were trying to export and socialism economically. So they fought against that. They did not want its infiltration. And along with the Russian military weapons that was arming the military of Syria came these ideas of socialism, came these ideas of communism. So as you look at why the, the revolution failed, there were tons of groups, hundreds, that divided up against Assad, but never unified in a goal of liberty and a goal of a national Syria that was based in democracy rather than in some type of authoritarianism or communism or socialism, because these ideas have been allowed to percolate by the Russians for many years. And by, obviously, by the Ba'athists. Ba'ath is the ruling party of Syria. But at the end of the day, one of the reasons that our families were so pro-American was they realized that Syria would never be in a vacuum. Syria, ultimately, the Syrian population was radicalized by the, not only Russian propaganda, but Islamist propaganda of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism in its penchant to try to demonize Western democracy and their great ally of Israel. That demonization stood strong for many years to empower the Ba'athists. And I can tell you that my dad had stories of how, before he escaped after medical school to come to the U.S., any question about not only the regime, but, oh, God forbid, if you ask questions about Ba'athism, so-called Arab uh, Syrian Liberation Party in translation. But 
God forbid you ask questions about why we were so economically, and I say we, them, my parents in Syria, why they were so economically tied to Russia. Why get weapons and jeeps from Russia that didn't work? Why not get them from the United States, he asked, and then was placed in prison because he asked that question. And realized that that relationship was part of the foundational element that gave the Syrian regime, a minority regime, uh, uh, albeit, a minority regime, the power, external power and influence and finances and, and weaponry that allowed it to subjugate its people. Now, the 20th century doctrines of American policy were related to where there were some states that were in the Russian axis and there were some Arab states that were in the American axis. And we, in that somewhat obviously polarized foreign policy, used that weight to build strong alliances with the Egyptian government, with the Saudi government. So those that were in the British and French, I'm sorry, in the British orbit, stayed with the West. But we continued to feed their monsters, their oppressive royal families and military dictatorships like the NDP in Egypt, be it Jamal Abdel Nasser, Sadat, Mubarak, we did not. Uh, and as, as the Arab awakening woke us up to, we did not in any way uh, espouse or articulate or facilitate an empowerment of the people, but rather a short-term stability for the region against the threats of the Soviet Union. But when the wall fell down in 89 and the Soviet Union fell apart, we should have done a 180 and begun to realize that we no longer needed these strong men in our portfolio of allies because of regional destabilization against the nuclear power of Soviet Union, but rather to begin to articulate a more moral, a more universal policy that adhered to our own principles. And eventually these things will come home to roost if we don't, and that was what's being proved with the open door China with the open door policy to China in which we thought through the Nixon-Kissinger um, doctrine that somehow economic trade with China would, would weaken their government and then open a release of the people's will. <laughs> Fifteen years later, not only did that not happen, but they've now used that technology and, and our spigot of capitalism here to purchase and give them the ability to not only continue to oppress their people, but have an unending supply of cash by which to do it. As I talked to you a couple episodes ago, there is a value to having a Cold War and beginning to stop the infusion of support of regimes like China's. Yes, it'll take some change to companies like Tesla and Apple, Nike, NBA, and others that are feasting off of the oppressive Chinese regime, the Chinese Communist Party. But similarly now with Russia, so many, uh, both on the right and the left, have been asking the question in the last five years, especially with with whatever that the Trump doctrine was, that somehow, why be enemies with Russia? Why constantly have a state of war? This is the what the establishment wants, etc. 
Listen, I'm with you that the establishment has certain institutions that it wants to feed like a beast that it will not change. And I'm talking about the American establishment, be it the Democratic Party's establishment and its statism and and others, its deep state concepts. I, I, I get it. And yes, that exists also on the right. But the corollary to that is not always the opposite. It's not always that if Russia was our enemy, so therefore, oh, we must be friends with Putin and he's not a bad guy. That there must be a way to reinvigorate a principled approach to domestic and foreign policy against threats from abroad without then all of a sudden seeming to advance the same ideas that Russian propaganda advances. Because I can tell you the advancement of the same ideas that Putin's not so bad, he's not a threat, fuels fuels the strength of those who would share our ideas and ultimately there is no better pro-American fuel for our democracy than to advance advance the symbolism and the reality of the defeat of those who carry contrary ideas. So ultimately, being anti-Putin will help advance Ukrainian citizens and dissidents that want to fight in this war. And thus, ultimately, Ukraine is not a perfect democracy. It had its problems, but ultimately bring it closer to becoming a more perfect democracy. And the same thing across the Middle East and everywhere else. It's not just something that you win militarily. No, we don't have to give our blood and treasure. But gosh, we sure lost a lot of time in the last few years where we could have armed the Ukrainians a lot better. They already have some arms and we're talking about sending them more. But gosh, we could have done a better job of that. Which would now have served us well. And now all of a sudden, the progressivists, I mean, I think if there's anything that's proving that the progressivist formula of globalism and anti-nationalism is a complete abject failure, it is the crisis in Ukraine. Because today, nobody has a more positive, positive polling in the West than the Ukrainian people. And it's the same pictures with pictures with automatic weapons in their hands and otherwise that we were told are so evil to have that we should not have them there's no practical use for them oh maybe is that because america is surrounded by two large oceans that we could never be invaded you bet we could be don't forget how close russia is to alaska right take a look at that map 50 60 miles or something like that And ultimately, Putin is acting erratically. God knows where he'll next evolve to or devolve to. The Chinese are trying to even contain him. But look what our friends are doing. Even our friends are beginning to act bizarrely. I've talked to you before about how wonderful the Abraham Accords were. Absolutely. But the UAE started acting oddly in November when it met in talks about corporate cooperation with Assad and his regime. And they did the same thing with Iran. And at the time, there was some context in November about climate change and helping helping 
nature and the, the, the planet. Oh, BS. It was about kleptocracy. It was purely kleptocracy of them trying to outcompete Iran with Russia, outcompete Sir- Iran with Syria. And they want to have roll up their sleeves and get into that pit of sewage along with the dictators of Iran and Russia and China and get a piece of that pie. They don't care how corrupt it is. And this is the problem with monarchies is that ultimately they will succeed to their greatest corruption, to the level of their greatest corruption. So, you know, on the one hand, I saw hope in the Abraham Accords because they got their theologians to begin to articulate why the state of Israel should be recognized by Muslims and even Quranically and Islamically, why it is and obviously a legitimate state. But now we see them one step forward, ten steps backwards, as they voted neutrally. They abstained in the UN vote a few days ago, the UAE did, to condemn Russia. One of a few countries, including China and others that abstained, Russia obviously vetoed it, showing how ridiculous the UN Security Council is having Russia on it, (laughs) a security council in which Ukraine is represented at the UN, and that security council has a veto power by the aggressor that went in to invade a sovereign state. And as Claudia Rosette said, it is no longer America deterring Russia, but Russia deterring us. Because when Biden said repeatedly that he'll not send troops to fight in Russia, he said that's because a world war when America and Russia start shooting at one another is what happens. That's a clear message, as Claudia says to Putin, that if he's willing to send guns into non-NATO terrain, it's open season. America might send aid, but America's mighty armed forces will steer clear. So who's deterring who? It's Russia deterring us, I would think. And obviously NATO is a different story. But they're already already talking nuclear. Now, people want to comfortably believe that those nuclear threats, especially about the Baltics and otherwise, which are NATO countries, is simply an attempt to begin to save face for a guy who's failing him and his military in Ukraine as they haven't made the advances they thought they were. But yet we still are on the defense. We still are on the defense. Putin took advantage of the White House hesitancy during the Obama-Biden administration when Putin in fourteen seized Crimea from Ukraine and effectively dared the free world to do anything about it. Obama scolded and rolled out sanctions. And now you saw Biden's debacle in Afghanistan and the shackling of U.S. energy and Russian gas for Germany. So now that the planets were aligned, so true, as Rosette writes. So the bottom line is, is that this is the lay of the land, ladies and gentlemen. And if we are going to rise above that, we need to begin to change what is success, change what is the mission. It is not to go to war. But for those who least want to send your sons and daughters into war, you must do so so from a position of strength. 
So I urge folks, many of us who've had experience in our families against the Russians for decades and generations can tell you that they will not go away quietly, that they only respond to strength. And I know that Ronald Reagan would be rolling over, or is rolling over in his grave as he hears what some supposed conservatives say about the threat of Putin and the Russians. There is no doubt that Ukrainian nationalists are strong and they're courageous and they're fighting for their country, but they need support. We don't need to send troops there, but we certainly need to do everything. SWIFT is the economic system that carries the central bank of Russia as it does the entire globe. They cut off 80% of it. Now it needs to be 100. There can't be a, a escape hatch for the regime. They don't care about their people. It needs to have zero options because even if there was 10% options, it would allow the regime of Russia to survive. A lot of work to be done, folks, and more to come on this. But I thought the perspective of some of us who've seen what the Russians do in their aggressiveness, as Americans have, be it in Vietnam or elsewhere, know that deterrence is such a much more important method than actual hot war. Next, I talked to you about the Phil Mickelson situation. What's going on with Phil Mickelson? His sponsors, Callaway, Workday, and others, have begun to distance themselves from him. Why? What happened? Why is he apologizing? Mickelson now has gone on record as apologizing repeatedly. And Callaway's saying they're, they're very disappointed in his choice of words. They in no way reflect Callaway's views. And that's one of the Gulf um, merchandise folks. No way reflect Callaway's values or what we stand for as a company. A company spokesperson told Gulf Digest last week. And they're distancing. And he's apologized. What is going on? Workday, in addition to Callaway, mutually and amicably agreed to not renew our brand sponsorship that ends this March. We want to thank Phil for his great contributions as an ambassador, both on and off the course. Boom, he's gone. And then the beer company Heineken Amstel dropped Mickelson after he released a statement Tuesday afternoon acknowledging the comments he made in a November interview to golf writer Alan Shipnick were reckless. Mickelson said he would be taking some time away, going on a sabbatical to prioritize the ones I love most and work on being the man I want to be. And then KPMG US also agreed to end his sponsorship. Heineken Amstel, the beer giant, he said, we made the decision to go our separate ways and end Amstel Light's partnership with Phil Mickelson. The sponsorship said, we wish him all the best. What happened? Well, here it is. He was speaking to a reporter who was writing a book and came under fire for justifying his relationship with the Saudi government. A regime Mickelson conceded. He said, quote, they are horrible human beings that have a horrible human rights record and executes people over there for being gay as a means of leverage. He said he did that, though, as a means of leverage against the PGA Tour. 
So wait, let's ratchet this back a little bit. There's been a feud going on with the PGA Tour and Mickelson and possibly a few others, but mainly Mickelson has been leading it where he called them previously obnoxiously greedy. So the PGA Tour was felt by these athletes, Mickelson and a few others, to be obnoxiously greedy that they're taking way too much of the cut. So these multimillionaires are having battles. We see this in every sport. Baseball now is on the verge of a uh, lockout, and uh, if not already, and uh, you see millionaires arguing with other millionaires about who gets more money, more of the pie. And I don't know who's right on this, but he told Alan Shipnick of the Fire Pit Collective, author of the forthcoming book, Phil, the rip-roaring and unauthorized biography of golf's most colorful superstar. That's the name of Shipnick's book. And Mickelson was talking about it, uh, obviously, as he was getting information for his book and he didn't hold back in trashing the PGA Tour and explaining why he had been engaged in conversations about joining the Saudi Gulf League Live LIV Gulf Investments is the name of the Saudi company that's trying to compete with the PGA as Shipnick put it he opened a vein and there's some excerpts in this book partnering with Saudi Arabia and a much Bollywood breakaway as Gulf Digest said to the Saudi Gulf League, Mickelson explained why he would even consider it. Here it is. This is the money quote. He said, they're scary mother Fs to get involved with. He's talking about the Saudis. We know they killed Khashoggi, U.S. Uh, Washington Post reporter and Resident, I've talked about him on this program before. And they have a horrible record on human rights. They execute people over being gay. Mickelson said, knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? Because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reshape how the PGA Tour operates. The PGA Tour has been able to get by with manipulative, coercive, strong-arm tactics because we, the players, had no recourse. As nice a guy as PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan comes across, unless you have leverage, he won't do what's right, and the Saudi money has finally given us that leverage. I'm not sure I even want the SGL, the Saudi Gulf League, to succeed, but just the idea of it is allowing us to get things done with the PGA Tour. You get it? So this is this story is not about Mickelson. This story is about the leveraging of billions, probably, of a foreign government with a horrific human rights record. And Mickelson just allowed himself to become a tool where, like any competitive environment those that can come in and throw tons of cash will have a scorched earth policy and Mickelson loved that to you know here's a guy who might be exposing some truth was dropping some truth bombs about Saudi Arabia truth bombs about the PGA but then he became as corrupt as them by using one corrupt mafia for against possibly another. Now, to equate the PGA Tour with the Saudis or even give the Saudis the moral upper hand is absurd. So Mickelson's a bit of an idiot. No different than LeBron James is an idiot who said that he criticized Ennis Cantor, remember? Because Cantor was just attacking his celebrity. Because it's all about him, LeBron. It's not about China or Turkey or any of the principles that Ennis was talking about. Same thing with Mickelson. Oh, it's all about him, isn't it? He's being attacked. He's apologizing. He, he hurt his friends, as his apology said. 
I'm surprised. I mean, who's advising Mickelson? He should respond and say, you know, what am I apologizing for? I was tough about the PGA, but this is truth. And I shouldn't be taking the billions from the Saudis, but he probably wouldn't want to say that, would he? And then later he said in, in this forthcoming book of his desire to gain possession of media rights, he said they are sitting on hundreds, he's talking about the P, PGA Tour, they're sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars worth of digital content we could be using for our social media feeds. The players need to own all of that. We played those shots. We created those moments. We should be the ones to profit. The tour doesn't need that money. They are already sitting on $800 million cash stockpile. How do you think they're funding the PIP or investing $200 million in the European tour? The tour is supposed to be a nonprofit that distributes money to charity. How the, quote, hell is it legal for them to have that much cash on hand? The answer is it's not. But they always want more and more. They have to control everything. Their ego won't allow them to make that money to succeed. And then he talked about the tour's policy structure being reimagined and on and on. Restructuring everything. He said, I know 20 guys who want to do this and if the tour doesn't do the right thing, there's a high likelihood it's going to happen with the SGL. So the bottom line is, ladies and gentlemen, you have a front seat to what happens when you ignore foreign regimes and their attempt to disrupt Western democratic free markets. And they will do that. The Chinese are buying up property in the West. The uh, uh, examples are just unlimited. And you will have millionaires Multi-millionaires will be all too willing sycophants to take a seat and use the foreign entities to be a bludgeon against domestic entities that are not good actors. But the threat, the comparison is just inappropriate. As bad as the PGA Tour might be and all of these financial things that Phil talked about, the Saudis are worse. And they certainly don't carry our values when it comes to human rights, women's rights, individual rights. And he said it up front, didn't he? He knows what's happening. So the story's not Phil. He's but a tool. And yet, if you look at all of the coverage of the Mickelson story this last few weeks, it's all about him. The Saudis is a footnote at the end with two lines because even our media entities are too afraid to talk about the truth when it comes to Saudi infiltration. And that needs to change. That needs to change. Last, it is amazing that this week, Israel appointed its first ever Muslim Supreme Court Justice, Khalid Kaboub, 63, a long-serving judge, left his position as the head of the district court, chosen by a committee among four new justices after a contentious selection. The justice minister says the balance of the conservative and liberal justice have achieved was amazing. They announced earlier last week the appointment of four new justices to the Supreme Court, including Kabuv as the first ever Muslim appointee.
comes amid efforts to reorganize the 15 justice body presiding over Israel's top court. And this is a report from Yannette News. You know, I will tell you in my trip, to, to, as I've been to Israel three times, in one of my trips, we met with some of the Supreme Court justices. One was an Arab that uh, we had met with, I don't recall his name, Arab Christian, and was just an amazing gentleman, amazing individual who uh, I think uh, clearly demonstrated um, a, a love for the state of Israel and also a representation of those um, within uh, his cultural, ethnic, and, and religious community that uh, um, he represented. And we also met with some of the Sharia court judges. The, uh, um, you know, the Israeli system has multiple religious uh, representations that allow family courts to be run by uh, not only uh, Jewish religious courts, but Sharia religious courts and Christian courts and Druze courts. And, um, you know, one of the main questions I had to the Sharia justices that I met was, where do you get the higher authorities for your information? What is the ultimate global religious rulings that you take in? Is it Al-Azhar in Egypt, or is it the Saudi uh, Wahhabi or Hanbali type? And they said, we don't. They ultimately are creating in many ways a new interpretation based on their own trainings, much like any Supreme Court or family court would do. You develop a precedence on your own, which was, I think, very revealing. On, and this is why we formed our Muslim reform movement that I've talked to you about quite a bit, which is that there is no institution that's trustworthy when it comes to universal human rights and Islamic law interpretation. There is none. These are corrupted, and they're corrupted by Islamist institutions that are still in the 13th century, whether it's from the Egypt-centric Al-Azhar Sunni, or the, which is more Shafi uh, tract, if you will, or the uh, Saudi Wahhabi uh, Hanbali type. And the bottom line is, is that uh, this is... So the bottom line is, is that it'll. It is, I think, a testimony to Israeli society's diversity and and the fact that, uh, you know, it's one thing regarding the Palestinian conflict and and what are different policy possibilities for the security of Israel and the region and human rights issues, etc. And it's another to say that the one million Muslims that live in Israel are occupied and, and that they don't have representation, etc. I know that uh, that's obviously a, a very quick generalization, but I think there's a lot to be learned from the fact that they now have a Muslim on the Supreme Court there. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how his decisions evolve, uh, how um, they are rooted in uh, various interpretations of secular and religious law. Um, but uh, bottom line is, is that uh, we will continue to follow this and uh, again, to all of the media that's ignored this and continue to give the Islamist Muslim Brotherhood narrative, pay attention. There's other truths out there about the realities of the democracy of the state of Israel. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. It's always great to be with you. Thank you for sharing uh, your time with me. And uh, we'll follow all of these things closely and keep uh, 
Uh, keep fighting the good fight out there. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, and also at Reform This Radio. And uh, send this podcast to your friends. See you soon. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.